Today's episode of The Landing is brought to you by friends of the podcast, Axis Forestry. Axis Forestry manufactures the all-new Rebel processor heads and the Cypress Robotics controllers. They also manufacture parts for multiple brands of processing heads, so check them out before your machine goes down. The guys at Axis are a great bunch of folks who stand by their products and are committed to getting you up and running, making money, and doing it quickly. If you haven't checked out the Cypress controller yet, head on over to Axis Forestry website. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. The Cypress controller can be retrofitted to any brand of head, and it's a game changer for any logging operation. It's rugged, reliable, simple to use, simple to install, and competitively priced. For a limited time, exclusive for the landing listeners, mention this podcast when ordering a new Cypress system and get a $500 parts credit. Oh, that's funny. All right, well, I will, let's see, roll the intro and then we'll go from there. All right. Welcome to The Landing, the podcast that goes into the brush with foresters, contract loggers, and operators of the Pacific Northwest timber industry. Welcome back to The Landing, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Davenport, and today we have on the podcast, Zach Sheets. Zach, how you doing? Pretty good. Uh, how about you, Jason? Uh, kind of a long day, but that's to be expected. Um, busier than I thought I'd be this time of year. Yeah, I hear that. It was a wet and windy day on the mountain for us today. That's I think the rain was coming upwards at some point. <laughs> Where are you working at right now? We're up uh, in Merlin, Oregon, um, up Hogs Creek, where the Rum Creek fire burned this summer. Got you doing some a, salvage work. Well, we're doing right now. We're building the roads for the logging companies. It's kind of what we. Uh, kind of have been doing recently is uh, a lot of road work and um, kind of ended up in the excavation side of things um, as of late, you know, so uh, it's keeping us busy, that's for sure, but we're uh, working right around all the, the loggers that are up there doing the salvage, so that's good. Yeah, so <clears throat> you've been logging for a while. Um, how long have you been doing it? You know, I think this is probably my 11th year, I want to say. I, I'm not exactly keeping track, but it's been long enough. <laughs> <laughs> Copy that. Yeah. Um, so what made you want to get into the woods? Did you have, like, family ties into the industry, or how did that get started for you? You know, I, I don't at all. Um, my My family has no involvement in any type of logging or really this industry as a whole. Um, we moved up from California, unfortunately, when I was about, I think, 11 or 12. And we kind of came from a um, city-type setting, and um, my dad moved us out into the middle of nowhere in, in a place called Sunny Valley, Oregon. It's kind of right in between Roseburg and Grants Pass there. And we had 10 acres, and it was a wooded area backed up to BLM. And so as a kid, I was, you know, spent all my time out in the woods and in the property. I think my, my hobby was really riding dirt bikes at the time. And we had a, a little farm tractor and, uh, I just 
couldn't get off that thing. You know, it was my favorite thing to do is to go out and move dirt around. So it was kind of at that point I realized I wanted to run equipment. I just didn't, you know, know what type or how or anything like that. And across the draw from us, a local logging company moved in and started logging and it was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that is uh, Bloomfield logging and I would go over there and bug him ride my dirt bike over there and bug him for a job I was you know 16 at the time so nobody was ever going to give me a job but I never stopped bugging him and I was just real interested with the equipment and you know, he had a yarder set up over there, and I could actually watch them log from my house. And so I spent a lot of time doing that and just kind of fell in love with the with the industry. And it took quite a while. I think it was probably a year or so before the owner of that outfit called me and asked if I wanted to go and give him a hand. And I uh, ended up out there, and it was I think it was the first or second day I realized that that's what I wanted to do. That's awesome. What uh, did you start out doing for him? Well, I was uh, I was just barely turned eighteen, so I think like the first couple of days and for, for I think it was the first couple of months, really, is just kind of following him around and packing his wedges for him. We were doing a lot of tree jacking, so you know, helping with the jack and bucking and limbing and stuff like that. And uh, it was just a one man show, and it was so it was just me and him. And, um, you know, he had a lot of equipment too, but, um, just had a hard time keeping a crew. He's kind of a conventional old school logger, you know? And, uh, so he had a hard time keeping guys. And, uh, so I did, I kind of got to learn a little bit of everything at first, not so much in the equipment, but, you know, setting chokers and stuff like that. It was a, if we were running the order, which that's what he had at that time, um, it would be him in the odor and me down in the brush. Gotcha. <laughs> so I kind of learned the hard way, I guess. Yeah. But, uh, it seems like the, really though, that's probably the best way to learn in the long run. Yeah. I mean, I don't um, regret any minute of it. There were definitely some tough days where you're down there wondering what to do. And, you know, I can think of many times where you hook up to something and it just ain't coming and you realize there's a good reason for it. You know, you're probably pulling on the wrong log and uh, you have the owner of the company come down in the brush. And I think <laughs> you got to hike down in there. You're going to be pretty hot by the time you get down there. So we, <laughs> yeah, I got my fair share of uh, getting yelled at. Yeah, it kind of comes with the territory, though. Absolutely. That's neat, though, that yeah. you didn't have any, like, industry relation, you know, before you started in it. It's kind of rare these days to find guys like that. Yeah, I think it is. It's it's definitely a tough industry to get into, especially if you have no family ties. And, you know, a big part of that, I think, is just dealing with that first couple of years of not knowing what you're doing. And I think it takes a lot of humility to be that guy, you know, it's, uh, you're going to get yelled at, you're going to make mistakes, you're going to look like an idiot and you're going to feel like an idiot, but that's just what you got to do. And that's what it takes. And it, and it takes a long time. And I, I don't think 
a whole lot of people really want to go through that. It takes, you know, true passion, I think, to, to put yourself through that and have some kind of goals for yourself and where you want to be and, and work towards them. And I, I think that's kind of just going away, you know? Yeah, I think you're right about that, but I do, I appreciate that, you know, that aspect of it because part of the reason I do this podcast is to kind of get the word out to if people are, you know, wanting to get into the industry or whatever, it's nice for people to know like what it's actually going to take because uh, it seems like nowadays, like all these companies, you know, they'll be advertising for mechanics help wanted and all the photos and videos on their social media and stuff are these super clean guys working on super clean equipment. And it's like, yeah, you're kind of not really, you know, you're not really advertising for the actual job that's going to be done. Like, you know, show some dude that's down the belly of a yard or covered in tacky lube or something. Cause you know, that's what you're going to be doing if you're working on logging equipment. Yeah, absolutely. And, and realistically you show those type of images and you're going to attract those the type of people that are going to be interested in that type of job. I mean, there's, I think there's a lot of shock to some of the new guys that are starting out, you know, they just have no clue what to expect and you get out there and I mean, I've, yeah, I can't even count how many times we've had a guy show up for their first day and he's, you know, by noon, he's just done and quits, you know, whether he just walks up to the landing or, you know, you can just tell mentally he's, he's done, you know, and it's I think tough, that's- dude, like it's physically demanding. And then also if you're doing anything else, you've got everything else to think about, you know, like every step you take, it's one thing my dad kind of beat into my head. Uh, when I was a kid working for him is every step you take, you're stepping into a whole new environment of risk. So like you got to look up, you got to be paying attention to where you're going. You know, you don't want to walk under a snag or see a widow maker up there. You know, it's worth the 10 steps to go, you know, some other way around it. And it's like, there's a lot to it that people don't think about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, I think it's pretty overwhelming for guys, you know, cause it, it's, um, pretty obvious how dangerous it is the second you step out there. I don't think you really have to be experienced to understand the danger to the job, but understanding how to avoid that danger is another story. It just takes time and it's certainly overwhelming for those new guys to kind of be relying on their crew members to keep them safe. And unfortunately in our industry, there are going to be times where, you're, you know, the crew that you're working on is <laughs> not exactly out to, you know, hold your hand and show you how everything works. Um, I mean, they're going to show you how things work, but I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, throw them out to the wolves <laughs> taking place out in the woods, you know? Yeah, I think so too. And I, I get it. Cause I, you know, I've been not logging or whatever, but you know, doing the welding and fabrication and equipment repair stuff is kind of my background for the most part. And it's like, you get that in that industry too, but there's a fine line that you have to walk between like, Hey, this dude's getting in a bad spot. We need to like, you know, get after him. Say, Hey man, you know, get out of there or like letting a dude trip over something and learn himself that he's got to watch what he's doing. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, some some lessons are better learned the hard way, and some aren't. You yeah, know, for sure. Yeah, I think uh, 
I don't know. The industry seems to be changing. And I think part of it is like the availability of, of employees and stuff and people willing to do the work. But I think there's still a lot left that can be done, you know, with that. Like, I don't know. It's everyone just says like kids don't want to work anymore and stuff. And I grew up kind of with that whole thing. I'm 32. I tell people I'm an elder millennial. And, uh, but it's like, you know, I learned how to work. My dad instilled that. I mean, my whole childhood growing up and it's like, I've never had anyone think I'm lazy at work, you know, and that's one of my biggest fears. And there's a lot of guys like me that are my age and younger, but it seems like the, the bad eggs out of the group really give the group a bad name. Oh yeah. That's, that's a fact. And it's unfortunate. And, but at the same time, you know, I think it makes the, the rest of us look even better that are actually out there trying to do something, you know, and it also opens the door to more opportunities if you're open to, to go after them. And so I'm grateful for that, but yeah, it's definitely unfortunate with um, just the way things seem to be going as far as work ethic in our generation. Yeah. It's, um, and I don't know how that changes either, you know? That was going to be my next question. I call that the million dollar question is what do you think we need to do to change that? And I, you know, it's a very complex issue, you know, so I don't know if there's a one answer fits all for any of it. Right. Yeah. I don't think there is really. I mean, everybody's different, but I think, you know, getting the younger generations to understand the actual positive benefits to, being a productive member to society. I mean, mentally, it's a huge deal. I mean, if you, if you're proud of what you do and you're happy with uh, your job and, and you're, you know, you're producing and you're productive and, and, uh, you know, you're paying the bills, of course, that's important too. Uh, there's just a, a much better feeling than if you're just kind of scraping by doing, you know, a, a job that you don't really care for, or, or at least working towards any kind of dream or goal. And I think, uh, we have to kind of start getting away from that being acceptable, you know, just having a job to get by. I think, you know, not everybody needs to go and chase their dreams because maybe, you know, not everybody's going to reach their, their dreams or goals, but, I think you you have to at least kind of strive for something, you know, as long as it's realistic. No, I and, agree with that. Like, how else are you going to be motivated to get out of bed in the morning? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and as the technology, you know, changes and gets better, um, things are going to get better for the employees and, and the owners and things like that. But uh, logging is one of those industries where I don't think they're – we're ever going to get away from that hard work ethic that's going to be required of, of the people that are out there. And, um, that is a little worrying, you know, what's, what's that going to look like in 10 years from now or 20? Yeah, it's wild. Cause I mean, even if you're driving a log truck or say a dump truck or, or running equipment on the landing, like there's still going to be, there's still that hard work, every day like you know if you blow a hose or you know you need to fix an airline or something on your truck like you got to get down there and get it done you know you can't afford to call a mechanic every time there's a small issue right yeah absolutely i feel like um 
you know, some places start people out in equipment and all that's kind of like, oh, you just run equipment. That's all you do. And then they get there and they're like, well, I have to use a grease gun or, you know, I have to change a hose. What are these wrenches for? Am I crummy? And it's like, there's a lot more to it than just pulling the levers. Right. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, you have the physical aspect of it and you also have the mental aspect of it. It's, you know, when that alarm clock goes off at two o'clock in the morning for the fifth day in a row, uh, you got to have that willpower to get your ass out of bed and go to work. And, uh, you know, seems to be less and less with our generations, but, um, something's got to change, you know, as people, we still got to do the work and it's not like, uh, our society's doing away with wood products, you know, they're still just as prevalent as they always were. So um, yeah, as far as production like goes, it's too, there's the a lot more like of this uh, mass timber kind of stuff. Like they're looking at uh, wood as a, a solution to like building high rises and stuff now instead of steel. And it's like, man, that's cool. But like we got, yeah. you know, you got to make that wood product somehow and it's got to come out of the woods. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and I think it's also getting harder for the owners, you know. Um, it's You see a lot of guys retiring and hanging it up and nobody there to take their spot, and that's, you know, putting a lot of mills in hard places and they're shutting down left and right and puts a lot of pressure on the ones that are left, and it's kind of creating a interesting environment for our industry i think yeah it it definitely is interesting it's um it's kind of weird but like we were saying earlier man if you've got the ambition there's a lot of opportunity for things to be had right now if you just are willing to to go out every day and bust your ass right yeah i mean there's a lot there's a lot out there uh, in the logging industry Specifically, I mean, if you think about all the different types of equipment and forms of logging and uh, and places to log, I mean, it's absolutely in- incredible w- w- where the industry can take you if you just let it. Yeah. No, you could. Well, and you're kind of that way, too. You've been up in Alaska and, and Siberia, right? <laughs> yeah. Dude, yeah, we I went to, over to Siberia for F- it was about four and a half, five months that we were over there. And that's just one of those things, you know, I was scrolling through Craigslist and found a, an ad, believe it or not. And all the ad said was, is they were looking for loggers to work in extreme environments. That's all, that's all it said. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I think I was 21 or something at the time. And I was like, man, that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I applied, and it ended up being a TV show for Discovery Channel, looking for people to go over there and make a TV show. And and that that's never what it was in the beginning, you know. That's kind of like right at the end, they tell you that, and you're like, whoa. <laughs> so they, I guess they had like uh, 900 people throughout the country that they were looking at, and they were going to pick five of them. And uh, they just, I guess they liked the passion that I had for the industry I've always kind of been a little obsessed with it you know and uh, they sent a film crew out to where I was working at the time and filmed us for a couple of days and I think it was like two weeks later I was on a plane heading to Russia 
That's wild. Yeah. Yeah, well, we actually, we went to Wisconsin first, and we were there for, like, about three weeks, and then we went to Russia. They kind of put us through some training uh, for Ponzi North America, which was the equipment manufacturer that we were using on the show, and, and none of us had ever even seen a Ponzi before. <laughs> <laughs> and so they sent us over there and put us through the classes and showed us how they worked and and it was a awesome experience dude that's wild i didn't know that that's crazy so was it pretty cool being on tv yeah yes and no you know i'm kind of a, a loner you know i don't <laughs> i like kind of my privacy and oh, yeah. um, while the show was airing it was, you know, pretty crazy getting recognized and stuff all over the place. And everybody wants to know all about the show. And the problem with that is, is uh, the show is bullshit. You know, reality TV is, is fake. Yeah. <laughs> and we didn't know anything about any of that until we got over there. And they actually sold us the whole idea. Uh, and then they specifically used Axman as an example. Is that we want to make a show that actually shows people what logging is like, and and we're going to do it in Russia, you know. And so the whole thing sounded awesome. But then when we got over there, it became apparent pretty quick that we were there to make a TV show, and that was it. And you know, I never had any intentions of being an actor or doing any type of acting and I found myself doing a whole bunch of it over there so that part of it was definitely a negative but um, the opportunities that it gave me were the you know the positive it was uh, it kind of molded who I am today I guess you know I, I had never really done much before that I definitely not been out of the country or barely been out of the States and, um, you know, you go, go over there and it's kind of eye opening the way they live over there. And, and especially the way they log over there is like, it's pretty crazy actually. Really? <laughs> yeah. You can see it, you know, you see the YouTube videos and stuff of them. This guy's going through, you know, mud is up to their doors and going through creeks and rivers and stuff. Oh, that's real. That's actually happening over there. And so it's a whole different way of logging. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, dude, imagine if you did that over here, you'd be in jail so fast. Oh my god, yeah, you would be <laughs> in big trouble. <laughs> and then the the whole scenario wasn't exactly how like a real logging company would be. Of course, you know, we had the Discovery Channel there with us backing it. So, you know, you got safety teams and they got so much money that they could care less about you know, the things that a normal company owner would care about. And so it kind of created these strange um, scenarios that we found ourselves in that we would never be in in real life, you know, like breaking stuff on purpose for, right. for TV and stuff like that. Dude, I always wondered about that too, because some of those shows kind of give the industry a little bit of a black eye, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, dude, yeah, people aren't going to do this, you know? Right. I mean, think about, I don't know if you ever watched that Axman show, but I mean, it's like 
the guy's cutting the other guy's tail old. It's like, what is going on here, you know? That's what I mean. It's like, that's... that would never happen. And, no. and Yeah, and that's super unfortunate because the reality of it is, is if you've hung around a log inside long enough, you're going to find the action that you're looking for. It's just they're not willing to do that, it seems like. Yeah, I... It just that stuff drives me nuts, dude. And like when I do my photography work, it's like sometimes people want like staged photos or whatever, and that's all fine and dandy sometimes. But it's like I want to go out and I want to capture real life. I want to show, you know, if I'm shooting for an equipment manufacturer, I want to show what the machine does all day and you know day in and day out i don't want to sit there and go hey can you like swing five degrees and hold the tree up another four feet so i can get this picture i'm like dude i don't want to do that and it's just different you know it's i don't like all that pomp and circumstance you know what i mean like these guys are here to go to work and it's cool enough job as it is like just go show it in real life yeah and you know you certainly could if they were patient enough I will say, you know, if it's 60 below outside, then I don't really blame the film crew for just standing there watching you all day while you get these. But, you know, that's what they signed up for. So, <laughs> Right. Yeah, it's kind of part of yeah. the job, dude. It's like. Yeah. I don't know. That's but, crazy. No, I mean, I wouldn't take it back for anything. It was definitely a, a, a great experience for me and kind of led me into the next, you know, years of my life, which, which were great as well. And, um, you know, learned a lot during that period. And I kind of uh, became good friends with the president of Ponte North America. And, you know, they he kind of sent me all over the place, really. We went to Finland and looked at the factory for Ponte. And, That's so cool. You know, Estonia and all those places. And it was a interesting experience. And when I got back, um, I was really into the cut to length stuff at that time because that's all I was doing for the last couple of months, you know? And so I uh, packed up my truck and went back over to Wisconsin where the, um, American factory, you know, or American headquarters are. And that worked over there for about two years, maybe a little less. And that was a cool learning experience. You know, uh, I kind of, wasn't really running my own business over there, but we had a kind of a deal worked out with the uh, dealership there, but they were getting so many used machines in that their um, mechanics and service techs couldn't really keep up with them all. So they'd get a used machine and then sell it and they had no idea what was wrong with it. So when the customer would buy it, you know, they'd have all these problems and it kind of started to turn into a, a thing at the time. So I um, found a landowner over there and that was supplying me with the, with the land. And so all the used machines would just come to my job and I would, you know, run them and, and get to use them for, for no charge. But in return, I would make a list of what was wrong with them. So that way, when they went back to the shop, they, they knew what they, they needed. Oh, gotcha. And so it worked out really good, but at the same time, I also had a, a lot of broken machines and <laughs> um, spent a lot of time mechanicing on them to, to at least get them to where they can, you know, cut wood. Yeah, I would imagine quite a bit of downtime sometimes. 
Yeah, absolutely. But when you're not, you know, when you don't have that machine payment that you would normally have, that's probably okay, right? Yeah. As long as it's not bad. <laughs> that's true. I mean, <clears throat> those payments nowadays are quite large. pretty bad that's wild dude you've been all over that's awesome yeah i mean i just i i think i'm a tramp logger at heart you know i just i've always been super curious about the different forms of logging and i've never really been afraid to try something new and um you know i think i think i probably have uh one of the only Take it till you make it stories as far as running equipment goes um, and, and all of that and it just has to do with my you know obsession with it really um, when I started out working for Blumenfield logging I was on the ground and he had all this equipment I knew from the very beginning that that's what I wanted to do was run equipment um, but you know getting your chance in the seat is, is a whole nother story so uh, <laughs> it's kind of a funny story really, but I, I was like yeah, 18, 18 or 19 working for him. And, um, you know, he'd let me in the machines every now and then and move them around and stuff, but like after work, but that was never actually like running them. Right. And so I had this crazy idea that <laughs> there's a, all these simulators out there, you know, and it, back then I spent a lot of time on YouTube and just researching equipment. And I just was, was so curious on how it all worked. And there's this uh, company called Simlog and they make simulators for, you know, excavators, dozers, uh, har- harvesters, forwarders, and all that stuff. And well, I, I called this company and you come to find out these simulators are like 15 grand. Oh, I mean, they want like a ridiculous amount of money for this stuff. And, and they're pretty rudimentary as well, you know? And so I was like, well, that ain't going to work. But I think a couple months later down the road, I got this idea where I, uh, I made a fake loggers world email address and I wrote this company a long email address and claiming to be a publisher for loggers world that I, and that I wanted to write an article on the positive benefits of using simulators for um, heavy equipment and, and focusing on the, the logging side of things. Well, sure enough, they, they wanted the publicity for publicity. So they sent me one of their simulators no. <laughs> for free. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so, um, I, I spent a ridiculous amount of time on that simulator. It was just the PC version of it. So I had to go out and buy my own joysticks and stuff for it. Right. But I mean, that's what I did. I would go to work all day and watch how they were using the machine. Because even at that point, I understood that you can, like, move a machine around and even be good at it and smooth. But if you don't know what you're doing with that machine, then it really means nothing. And so I kind of got that part just by watching. But then I would go home and try to imitate it on the simulator. And, and yeah, I did that way too much I, I think you know all my friends are making fun of me because all i did is spend time on this simulator but i was obsessed you know i just wanted to learn how to run equipment and um bloomingfield was going through they were changing jobs and was, i think it was going to be like three weeks that they were 
out of work and so once again I'm back on Craigslist looking for a job and there's a job they're looking for a shovel operator well I had probably spent maybe I don't know two hours in real life on a shovel but like thousands of hours <laughs> in, in a simulator yeah. and so I called these guys and told them yeah I know how to run shovel <laughs> and so they gave me the job and uh, still to this day, I don't think that they knew that that was my first time ever running a shovel. I think they just thought I was, you know, not very good, but that's the, the, yeah. <laughs> and so it's definitely a fake it till you make it scenario, you know, they, which I don't know if that's even true because a couple months later or whatever, you know, they ended up finding a real shovel operator and, and then I was back in the brush and that went on for couple of years where you know you're kind of they knew that you were capable but there were always somebody better you know so <laughs> you'd get a chance every now and then or when somebody calls in sick but for the most part i was in the brush gotcha what all jobs have you done out in the brush like mostly set chokers or yeah you know i started out just very conventional as a chaser and then setting chokers and then pulling rigging and and then from there, ran yarder and uh, ran yarder and yoder, and then kind of slowly worked my way into a processor, which I was a full-time processor operator before I was ever a shovel operator. It's kind of another thing with that is I used to, <laughs> this company I was working for after Blumenfield, where I was in the brush most of the time, is that I'd pay the processor operator like 100 bucks to stay after work and show me how the damn thing worked. And, you know, back then it wasn't really as friendly as it is today. So, you know, you got your old-timer processor operator that's you know, has really no interest in showing anybody else how the thing works. And so that's where you start paying them <laughs> to yeah. stay after work. And uh, it worked, you know. They, if you, you hand them 100 bucks and they're going to stay after work, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> That's smart though, man. I mean, it's figuring out how to get done, you know, you had a plan and you figured out how to make it happen. Yeah. I mean, it took a long time, but it's, I'm definitely happy where I'm at with it all now. You know, I'm confident in just about every machine there is really. I mean, I haven't spent a whole lot of time on a, on the, the bunchers with a directional felling head. Um, so that's kind of one of the last things on my list to, to conquer. <laughs> I haven't spent much time around those either, but they seem like they're pretty badass. Yeah, they're awesome. Uh, I've, I've, you know, swung them around and cut a couple of trees with them, but I've never actually got to spend a, a full day running one. And I, you know, it's not really any harder than a buncher. So it's, I think I could pick it up pretty quick, but the, ground that those guys are working on with those things nowadays are, now that's a whole nother story you know you gotta i think that probably takes years and years to get comfortable with the tethers yeah dude like the first time i saw someone cutting on a tether uh i went up to take some photos of a buddy of mine todd a lot of guys know him you know just through the internet and stuff because i well, I was starting out, man. They were like working all the weekends and stuff on the salvage stuff. So I'd go out as much as I could and get photos of him and this other guy, Wayne. And 
The first yeah. time I saw a Todd cut on a tether, I was like, nah, I'm going back in the truck. Like this thing is just going to tumble down the mountain. Like <laughs> I don't want anything to do with this. And he's comes back up and he goes, where'd you go? I'm like, dude, this is sketchier and shit. And he goes, man, I do this every day. It's normal. I'm like, I don't know, man. But you know, the more you're used to it, you get a little more comfortable and stuff, but. Yeah, it's, uh, it's incredible where those machines will go. Yeah, it takes a lot of trust, that's for sure. Um, you know, someone's doing such a good job with that stuff. I, I don't see any reason not to trust it, but there's always that unknown element, you know. Well, yeah, and you've been around enough cable logging, like those things wear out too. Yeah, yeah, exactly, especially... You know, I see those guys cutting on those rock bluffs, and you can't help but to wonder about that cable. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know a lot about that stuff. I'd like to get either Eric Kroom on or somebody from, like, their or Traction Line, like, kind of get the lowdown on all that for everybody. Because I know, you know, that stuff has to be inspected on a regular basis. You know what I mean? That's It's just too much risk not to. Right. Yeah, you would think. Uh, you know, I don't know how you expect a thousand feet of line though. Is that yeah. walking up and down it every day? So right. there's definitely things to it that are still a little spooky. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've been around some of them like when they break down on the line, <clears throat> and that's not a lot of fun either. Like you blow a hose and you're 800 feet from the tether. Yeah. Like I've had a, had a couple of days of packing buckets down into the brush where I didn't know if I was going to be able to walk back up at the end of the day. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty wild stuff. Yeah. Uh, I'm a, really excited to see where it all goes. Yeah. Uh, can't help but to wonder, like, where does it go from here? Well, that's what I mean. Like, it's already kind of space age now compared to, like, just slackline logging used to be. Yeah. And, I mean, what's it going to be in 20 years from now? It's just going to be insane, I think. Hey, guys. Have you heard about the new Rebel T22 processing head released in December of 2022? It's built by this podcast episode sponsor, Axis Forestry. The T22 is designed specifically with a North American logger in mind. It's built tough. It'll cut up to 23-inch wood, and it can be ordered in a variety of feed torque options. For just a $1,000 deposit, you can get your name on one right now in the production queue. Call Axis at 778-471-2947 to order. Or if you want to see what they have to offer and talk to Wayne or any of the other awesome people at Axis, swing by their booth at the Oregon Logging Conference. They're going to be in uh, booth number 168 and 169 in the exhibit hall. That's February 23rd through the 25th, 2023. Who knows, too? Like, maybe, maybe all this is weird. Like, this is obviously just speculation and, like, just something to talk about. But, like... What if the industry just goes back to slackline logging? <laughs> you, know, right. like, you never know, dude. Well, it's kind of, you know, if you think about the grapple logging side of things, it's like grapple logging used to be the way to do it. And then, you know, went to the motorized carriage. Well, now the grapple carriages are kind of making a comeback. Yeah. Like uh, a lot of guys I follow on the internet up in Alaska, dude, they grapple log up there with the big swing yarders. And it's like, yeah. I don't really see much of that down here in the Northwest, but at the same time, like you set up a 180 tiger cat with a Acme grapple carriage. It's kind of the same type of deal. 
Yeah, really. Just a little smaller I mean, size. Right. And, and then, you, of course, you got the support of the cutting machine down at the bottom, which is, you know, laying it out just right. I think it'd be a lot harder to grapple log with, like, with a, or like a grapple carriage. If it was, like, hand fall, that'd be a nightmare, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, you're not going to be getting your production with that, I don't think. Yeah, not unless it's like the perfect scenario every time where you got a you know mobile tail hold down the bottom, and but that's never the case, you know. Yeah, yeah, dude, it's just crazy. I'm excited to see where it all goes, and I think it's going to be pretty neat. I think so too. I, I really do. So I wanted to but, pick your brain about logging up in Alaska too, because that's kind of like one of the things I would like to go and take photos of at some point in my life is British Columbia yeah. and then Alaska. Cause it seems like it's a lot different than it is down here. It really is. Uh, Alaska is just its own beast. Um, you know, the weather's more extreme. The conditions are more extreme. The wood's bigger and just everything's just more extreme really is kind of the only way I can think to put it. Um, uh, I my experience with Alaska was was mechanical logging, so I haven't been around any of those, you know, the, the towers up there logging the big big wood or anything like that. Okay. But at the same rate, we were one of the first mechanical sides in Alaska, and then definitely the first tiger cats in Alaska. And so it was um, kind of a learning curve to adapt to that environment. You know, the Tongass is is a very wet place <laughs> and uh you know it's not not the same as it is over here so and the company i was working for when i went over there it was you know my first day was was the company's first day as well so everybody was starting out and that was another you know scrolling through craigslist and in an ad looking for processor operators up there and went shoot that sounds fun <laughs> you know <laughs> i didn't have a, a kid at the time or anything so I was always open to, to doing stuff like that. And then that was one of those scenarios where I had called on it and I was on a plane heading up to Alaska, like not the next day, but the day after that. And it was really quick. And, uh, you know, that was a interesting experience as well. When we got up there, it was a, an Indian corporation that decided to log their land. They had like 12,000 acres, I believe. Okay in Yakutat, Alaska, and they decided they were going to buy logging equipment and give it a shot. And um, a lot of it was second growth timber. They had logged most of that area back in the 40s and the 50s, and it's real slow to grow. So none of the wood that we were working in was huge. I mean, there was some nice stuff, but not like what you would think of when you hear Alaskan timber, you know. Yeah. But, um, you know, the the setup wasn't really right at first they had hired a foreman that came from a cable logging show and that's all he ever done was cable log and you know it's cable logging is not the same as mechanical logging and, and the way it kind of worked out is i was actually hired as a processor operator but within like three weeks the the foreman that they had would quit because he just you know the the that they call it the CEO of the company, which is ridiculous to me because it's logging, but that's what it was because <laughs> it was a corporation that was doing this. And the, well, this guy was like an investment banker. He had never been around logging or anything like that himself. So he had no clue. 
how it all was supposed to work. And then he was told when he bought this equipment that this equipment is going to produce 30 loads a day. And so that's what he wanted, those 30 loads a day. And, you know, our foreman that we had was used to working around yarders and just couldn't quite figure it out. And it came, it became pretty apparent pretty fast that I, even though I was the youngest guy on the crew, I actually had the most experience with mechanical logging. I, I had been around tiger cats and stuff like that and knew how it worked. And uh, so I became the foreman within like three weeks of being there. And that was the whole, you know, experience in itself, learning how to not only manage a crew, but manage the company because the, the CEO of it, he had no clue, you know, when it, I mean, everything down to ordering the fuel and depth and, making sure you had the things that you need because if you didn't have it, it was like two weeks if you were lucky um, to get whatever it is that you need there. And so that's one of the things things I was wondering about too, is like the, just the logistics up there is nutty. Just, you know, cause it's very hard. We were working with barges and stuff like, yeah, it's, it's, If you don't have what you need, then it's going to be a long time until you get it. And when your all your timbers export and you got to ship on schedule, you have to have the wood in the in the yard for that ship when it gets there, or else it's going to be a loss. I mean, it costs a million dollars to charter one of those ships from from across the sea there. Oof. And if you don't have, you know, 5 million feet in the yard ready to go on it when it gets there, you're either going to lose a lot of money or, you know, break even. And so it's always a push to meet that ship date, which is, I always kind of like that aspect of it. It was a, you know, 12 hour days, seven days a week, push, push, push. And, um, you know, that part, that's what I was there to do. You know, you're living in a camp, so it's not like you want to just go back and sit in your cabin or whatever all day so you really had nothing better to do but to work but at the same rate you know you think about babysitting a crew down here uh it is a whole nother story up there because uh, the way that that corporation had it set up was that they were only allowing uh, but they were, I mean, they would call them outsider. We were an outsider. We didn't grow up there. We weren't from Alaska. And that village, I guess you would call it Yakutai, is very small. It's like 600 people. And um, that corporation, most of the, the way they had it set up was, you know, they would only allow outsiders in when they absolutely needed them. So, the, like the core positions, like foremen and processor operators, where they weren't able to find right there in Yakutat. And so I'd say like 75% of the crew were locals that have never been around logging ever. And they really had no interest in being around it. And they were also shareholders in the corporation. So it created a very strange scenario where you can't fire them. You can't really yell at them. And they really didn't care about what was going to happen to that that company which you know looking back at it now they're they're bankrupt and actually in a lot of trouble for logging i think like ancient burial ground or something i was reading it's it doesn't look good i think the like SeaTac alaska and stuff's getting involved it's mm. it's uh yeah it's a uh, 
was an interesting environment to work in. That's for sure. So like, had you managed crews before you'd been up there? Nope. I had, um, you know, been, I guess in management, like our, I guess, upper level positions, but never actually had a whole crew working under me. Gotcha. So I bet yeah. that was quite an eye-opening experience for a while, huh? Yeah, definitely. You know, <laughs> you have to kind of learn how to how to work with people that don't want to work. You know, and I'm, I'm not mad about everybody that was up there. Uh, there, we definitely had a lot of good guys come through, but the majority of the of the locals there just really had no interest in in what we were doing. I mean everything that we had was brand new. I mean, the tiger cats were brand new. The shovels were brand new. And it's like, you get those guys that run, run the skitter for a day. And they're like, fuck this thing. I want to run that. You know, they want to run the brand new buncher or whatever. <laughs> it's just like, man, when I was starting out, I would have killed somebody to run that skitter all day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I bet it was weird too. Like being like you're saying an outsider, like, you know, those are very tight knit communities up there. The native populations that, that probably put a lot more strain on the situation as well. Oh yeah. Like you go around the, the village there and it was, I think it was probably 70% of the people there didn't, didn't want you there. You know, you were yeah. there vlogging their land. I mean, everybody, everybody there is part of the tribe for the most part. And, uh, so they, you know, have their opinions about what they should be doing with that land. And they had the option to do the carbon credits and they chose to, to log. And, um, you know, there's the, the bad part about it is we were logging like right outside of the, of the town. And so all those people had to see that. I mean, it was right in front of their face. And, um, yeah, they didn't like it very much. That's for sure. And those those guys get to drinking, and they start showing up with guns at night and stuff. We we were kind of always on edge. The <laughs> the outsiders, I should say. Yeah, I bet that was weird. But you said all the equipment was new. It looked like one, I was scrolling your Instagram there, and it looked like uh, <clears throat> you were running a three ten with a six twenty four on it. Uh, we well, we had a three ten, but that was a shovel, oh, and then we had two. Brand new Hitachi 370s with okay. 620, 625s. Okay. And those were, those were actually quick changes built by um, Summit. And they were awesome. You could switch from a grapple to a processor in about, I don't know, 45 minutes or so. Oh, shit. Yeah. So we used those quite a bit. I mean, when the processor would start getting clogged up, you know, we just we always had the 310 there and, and Alaska is like, you make so much waste there because export, I think, I think it was like a 10 inch top and, and kind of most of it was one. And if you were lucky, a two log tree. And so the top just gets thrown a brush ball. You almost have to have a shovel there just keeping you cleaned out gotcha. because you just create so much slash. And so we always had an extra shovel around. So we, we could always spare, you know, and, and switch one out to process, have two processors going or, or vice versa. If we're doing a lot of shovel logging and trying to get a couple of decks going, we've got, you know, three shovels going. Uh, so that made it, you know, a little better. Like, <clears throat> sorry, man, I keep clearing my throat. Uh, a lot of people down here run the 310 Hitachis with like a 623 or 624. How did that 370, was that pretty badass? 
Oh yeah, those three seventies are the shits, man. As we had the rear entry cabs, and you know, of course, they're brand new. I put the first hundred hours on that processor. It's uh, the just the cabs and the the six twenty fives actually are are a really good head, and that was the first head I'd ever run with the rear knife on it, and I just fell in love with that rear knife, especially with that real Lemmy Sika spruce that we were running. It was almost necessary. I think when I first got there, I was like, we got to take that damn thing off of there, you know? Yeah. And within a week, I was like, I I think there's probably no other way for that type of wood, you know? Yeah, so I haven't actually seen one run with the rear knife. That just helps all do limb everything. It probably feeds a little bit better that way. Yeah, it definitely feeds a little bit better, but you also get to, you can limb the log going backwards a little bit better and get it all the way down to the stem if you got that type of wood where it's lemmy you know clear down to the bottom it's it's pretty important to have that rear knife i mean you could do it without it but it's just helps i mean it really does and you can set it up on a separate button so you can just leave that knife open if you don't need it okay and it really doesn't get in the way huh that's interesting because i I went and shot some stuff. Oh, I don't know. Maybe it was last year sometime, but it was kind of up getting into the Cascades, like the middle of Washington. Dude, that timber up there is just so limmy. And it's like you're saying all the way to the ground. I'm thinking, man, this is going to suck to process. You know what I mean? But I guess if you have that bottom knife, it would be pretty nice. You grab it in the middle, run down the butt, find your end and go. Yeah, you get really good at with that limmy wood, like, as you're, you know, you kind of take a half pass to clean off the, the first part of the stem, and then as you're feeding back, you kind of open up your head and let that log just kind of barely catch the knives, and that way it'll clean out your measuring wheel, because you get all that stuff jammed in there, and you know, and then it's not going to measure right, so you get in a habit of just kind of almost opening up and running back to the to the butt and starting it from there and it just becomes second nature really gotcha no that's cool i didn't i didn't think about that either that stuff would plug up in the measure wheel and stuff oh yeah it does big time it's one of the i mean as a processor operator that's like one of your main jobs is watching that measuring wheel i mean of course if you got if you're decking right and you got a nice deck where you can see both ends of it you can kind of tell what's what like when you put it in the deck but it's it's always a lot faster just to get it right the first time you know what i mean yeah for sure and a lot of that would be in second growth was probably mostly all the same sort yeah we only had two sorts up there actually we were <laughs> it says uh 35 and 25 and one cheese that we were cutting everything else was getting piled up for biomass huh that's wild yeah so yeah, how but did it was work? Tough. oh go ahead i was just gonna say this is pretty tough cutting in there because because it was second growth so the the second growth like the stumps i mean you could just barely pull on them and they'd come right out but the old growth stumps man those things they were bad and they were everywhere and so it was it's pretty difficult to cut in there and make it to where the skitter can still get around i mean you, sometimes you'd spend 20 minutes pulling out one of those old growth stumps just to get something going you know oh. and and then setting the trees down you got to kind of set them somewhere where the skitter can actually get to it <laughs> yeah because you can't like bend a whole turn around a big old growth stump 
Exactly, and you can't set the turn on top of it because then they're they're too. I mean, those old growth stumps are tall, you know. Yeah, I was and, just going to ask about that. They're probably cut with springboards and stuff because the swollen butts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They were they were all pretty tall. <laughs> That's rad. But I couldn't believe the difference between the two, though. I mean, the second growth, you, I mean, it didn't take nothing to pull those out of the ground. And if you kind of picked your road right, because we that was that was my approach as as a new foreman of the company was. You know, the the old one wasn't getting, I think we were getting like 11 or 12 loads a day at the very most. And, but he was also skidding like, sometimes we, he was skidding like 2,000 feet sometimes. And, you know, we had all the equipment we needed to build roads, but the guy, you know, the, the guy that he had just didn't quite understand, you know, you shorten up your skids, you're going to produce a lot more. And so that was what I did most of the time. When I became the foreman, was I, I would just build roads everywhere, build landings and build roads. So that way the skitter was always like, you know, 500 feet. And um, if you pick the, the route without the old growth stumps, I mean, you can almost just take the dozer down there and knock them out and you'd have a road built in no time. That's funny. Yeah. So what were you hauling, yeah. just like highway trucks that they had up there would haul out to like your lay down yard? Yeah, we had a sort yard that we built when we got there. It was was the old sort yard that they had used back in the 50s. And um, so it was overgrown. We had spent a couple of days opening that up and getting it ready. And then towards the ship date was really when the boomsticks started becoming the, the major priorities, rounding up those boomsticks to make the log pond. And that was a you know, almost a full-time job for me was scouting the timber out there to try to find these boomsticks because they have to be the right size. And it's a whole process. You know, you got to cut them and you get them, you know, 60 feet or so. And then you got to take them out to the water and float them. And that way you can kind of tell which way they're going to float upside. So that, so then when you go to drill your holes to chain them, together they're not trying to roll and get all twisted up because if you just take them into the sort yard and drill your holes well you know the logs naturally going to want to float a certain way and so if you just drill them willy-nilly and throw them out there you're going to have a mess so we had to do all that which was all new to me you know i had to learn all that stuff everything from we had hired a barge from juno who built our concrete anchors and so we had to go out there and set the anchors ourselves for the, for the log pond, you know, and that was, that was awesome. <laughs> yeah. I bet it was kind of fun getting to do all that other stuff. Like, you know, things that you don't really do around here at all. Yeah, absolutely. But it's definitely, uh, I'd rather hike through the woods in Oregon than in Alaska. I mean, <laughs> the bears were pretty crazy over there. You really couldn't even leave your machine without, having some kind of firearm. And uh, the problem with it, where we were, is Yakutats, you know, it's a huge place, but it's like where where the people are. It's actually a pretty small area. And they they have uh, their landfill there, you know, of course. And the, the bears, they get so used to eating out of that landfill, which has heavy equipment running around. So the bears, they get really used to the sound of heavy equipment in their and people in general, and so they're not, you know, necessarily these wild bears that are going to run away as soon as they see you. I mean, 
they're pretty interested. It was very common to have them just walk right down the hall road while you're sitting right there working. They just kind of look at you and wander off, you know? That's (laughs) wild. Those are like the big brown bears up there too, right? Oh yeah. I mean, big bear, like like the type of bear you do not want to come face to face with in the woods, even if you have a damn rifle, you know? (laughs) Yeah. That's nuts. Did you have any close encounters? I didn't have any dangerous close encounters, but I definitely had my fair share of bear encounters where it was like, I better get the fuck out of here, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And I was pretty good at psyching myself out when I was, you know, I'd lay out the roads and stuff for the buncher where I wanted to go and then doing the scouting for the boomsticks. So I spent a lot of time just hiking around looking for them. And, uh, you know, you'd hear a little twig snap or something and psych yourself out. Like, Holy shit, I got to get out of here. <laughs> you know, it's a little spooky, but no, I never got bluffed or anything like that over there. Gotcha. I do that every time I hike in somewhere in the dark. I'm like, oh, what was that? But it's like a raindrop hit my hard hat or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's pretty easy to spook yourself out in the woods. It's, you know, it can be creepy, that's for sure. And I, there was something to that area over there that I just couldn't get over. It was like the, because it was all kind of like ancient, like ancestry ground, like where they, you know, they had all kinds of, uh, areas that had some kind of significance in history, you know, all throughout the woods. I just, I was always kind of help but to think, man, am I like running over some <laughs> ancient Indian's grave and he's going to come haunt me or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. I would get myself psyched <laughs> up about that too. Yeah. Yeah, you always kind of help but to wonder. And some of those nights, you know, and it's, I mean, in Yakutat specifically, I think most of Southeast Alaska, uh, there are times where it's like, it's not raining over there. It's water just coming out of the sky. I mean, I've never seen rain like I have when I was over there. And the ground is so used to it. It just drains so well. I mean, it could it could pour all night long, and you can have lakes out in your haul road, and by the end of the day, they're gone. Yeah. It's such a trip. Yeah, that's wild, dude, because if it does that here, you're not hauling for a couple of days. No, I mean, yeah, if it did, like what it did up there down here, I mean, you'd be shut down for a month. I mean, I, I'm not kidding you. I'd never seen rain like that. I, I'm skeptical of even calling it rain. <laughs> it's like I said, it was just water coming out of the sky. There were no drops. It's just like <laughs> just straight water. That's wild, dude. I, <clears throat> I always yeah. wanted to go up there. One of these years, I'll make it. Yeah, there's a, at least as a vacation. I I never have really been up there as a vacation. I I actually spent two summers up there. I spent a summer, uh, it was a couple of years before I went up there logging. I was helping my stepdad out there at a gold mine. And and so, you know, I never really got to go up there and enjoy the sights. I was always working. Right. Yeah. What an experience, though, man. You've been all over. I think it's kind of cool because uh, – like my whole career so far, it's been that kind of way. Like, Oh, I want to get into this. Well, I'm just going to go get into it. You know, like I'll work hard and figure it out. And it's, um, I don't know, kind of frowned upon by some people, but other people are like, Oh, you know how to do this. That's cool. Like <laughs> it's just, yeah, people it, look at things. 
Right. It's really hard to walk that line of, um, you know, being a tramp logger and still, you know, having respect from the guys that you're working for. It's, uh, you know, it's, it, you know, part of it is you're always kind of looking for a better opportunity, of course. And, you know, sometimes that's just turned around and bite you in the ass. But I think the biggest part of it is just looking for a new opportunity, looking to learn something new. And, you know, had I not chased down those opportunities and, you know, that's a lot of, you know, leaving companies and going to another one. And, you know, of course that's frowned upon, but, um, if I hadn't done any of that stuff, I probably wouldn't know half of the stuff that I know now. And so I'm glad that I did, but it's very, very hard to walk that line and not, you know, just, um, be looked at like a quitter. You just, you know, looking, always looking to make more money. You know, the money was really never a thought to me. It's like, uh, I never have left the company to go to another company doing the same job just for more money. It was always like, Oh, I'm running shovel now and I've never run a buncher, but this company's looking for a buncher operator. So I'm going to go over there and run a buncher, you know? Yeah, no, I definitely get that. Cause that's kind of the same way I've been with my career so far. It's like, well, Hey, you know, I've kind of worked this place and I've done everything they do, but this other outfit, they do something totally different that I think I can do. And I want to do it. So if you get more money yeah. going to the next one, you get more money, but it's like, I want those experiences. Right. And that's important. And I don't blame companies for frowning upon that, but you know, most of the time, if you're, um, you know, communicating correctly with your boss and letting them know what you're looking to do, then they'll, um, actually, uh, encourage it, you know? Yeah, I think so. I think good, good bosses understand, you know, that like, Hey, this guy's got big ambitions and you know, they got to go. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you know, I've kind of worked a little bit everywhere, especially in Oregon. I've tramped around quite a bit. I've, I've worked up where you guys are quite a bit and I've, I've actually lived in Albany for about two years as well. And, Work for all the bigger companies around there, and it was the same thing. You know, you go to, uh, work for Miller Timber, running the Ponzi's, and go, well, I think I would go, you know, <laughs> run a processor for B&G. I worked for B&G for, uh, like, two years, uh, on and off. I think um, while I was working at B&G's was one of the times that I went up to Alaska for a summer, and then when I came back, I went back to work for them, and... And, uh, you know, I got an opportunity to actually start a logging company down here. We, you know, it's always, I've always been pretty open about my end goal, which is, you know, having my own yarder and my own crew. And most people that I've worked with, especially down here, are pretty aware of that. And an opportunity came up where we found a, a guy that was, willing to finance it and um it was a the, an old boss of mine that was looking to get rid of a whole side which is a yarder a shovel a processor a couple of guy line cats and uh and then the crew as well which i knew very well so it was a, a good transition and uh kind of in the midst of that things fell apart the, the investor i guess you should say who's very well known in our area, but not in a good way. Um, 
you know, things came out where he was laundering money and they ended up getting arrested and things oh, like geez. that. So all that kind of went down the drain and I just went back to being an employee and yeah, you know, it's kind of sometimes the chasing your dreams doesn't exactly <laughs> work out in the best way. You know, I've had a lot of failures in my life, that's for sure. But just keeping that end goal and in, in mind is pretty important, you know? Well, and I feel like too, the lessons you learn of what not to do are just as valuable as the lessons you learn of how to do something. Oh, absolutely. I think that's, it's a huge deal. I mean, like I said, I have worked for a lot of companies and one of the things I've found is that, you know, if the owner of that company or your immediate boss, um, doesn't feel the same way about the industry, which in my experience is generally like if you're working with the boss's son or the, you know, the, a guy whose parents have been doing it for a hundred years or whatever is they typically don't have the same perspective on things and, um, it makes it hard, you know? Yeah. That's, <laughs> it's definitely a weird situation sometimes with that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think my last question for you is going to be, um, what is your advice to people who are maybe just starting out or wanting to get into the industry? Like, what's your advice for figuring it out and making it last? You know, I I would say the very first thing you need to do is find out for yourself if it's actually what you want to do. I mean, if you get out there and you, um, go through the ranks and get through that initial phase of being the dipshit on the crew (laughs) and you still like it, then in my mind, if as long as you keep, you know, showing up to work every day and and striving to be better, I I really believe that you will be successful in this industry, especially with the way things are going right now. Yeah. I, I think that's good advice. Um, yeah, and that's just the most important part, though, is really, really knowing in your heart that that's what you want to do. Because if it's, if you know, this is one of those jobs that you can't really half-ass it. You really have to to be involved in a way where it's kind of your lifestyle, you know. And or that might be kind of a, a cliche that oh, it's 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 not a job; it's a lifestyle. But it really is, you know. You kind of have to to live it and you can't really fake it out here or else you're going to get found out pretty quick and you're probably not going to like your job very much. Yeah. I feel like it's one of those things too, that like it's going to be dangerous for you if you're just trying to get out there and punch the clock and not, you know, really care about what you're doing. It's just not a good situation. Yeah. Not at all. Not for anybody. I mean, in reality, there, there ain't a lot of money in this industry is you know, especially for the owners and there's not a lot of room for that here. And unfortunately you see it more often than you would think. I mean, there's a lot of guys out there that just want to show up and put in their eight hours and go home. And um, I can't say I really blame them. You know, if if it's not their passion, then I, I don't see why you would, you know, put any more effort into it. But at the same rate, you probably should go find another industry, you know? Yeah. There's lots of other things to do. 
Well, especially right now, it's kind of starting to slow down a little bit. But I mean, there for a while during the uh, sickness pandemic, it seemed like you could pretty much get a job anywhere if you're just willing to show up every day. Yeah, I mean, that's the truth. And and they're good jobs. You know, they're not easy jobs, but they're good jobs. And you can support a family on, on these jobs. And, and uh, to me... If if uh, if you're willing to get up and go to work every day, then then I I think there's definitely a place for you out here. But if you're not, then go somewhere else. You know, sure. because there's not a whole lot of jobs where you can put a whole lot of people in danger just by your own negligence. You know, and this is one of them. You're running yarder and not paying attention and you're on Facebook or whatever and not listening to the whistle, well, a lot of bad things can happen pretty fast. And it's the same with any position down there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I, dude, I don't know. This, it's crazy. I don't think I would want to run yarder. Like, I think yeah. I'd be stressed <laughs> out. That would stress me out. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, though, especially you get a good crew that you worked with a long time, and you kind of know what everybody is good at and what they're not, and especially if you're on a swing yarder, you know, that's a lot of fun. There's there's certain things that I always enjoyed about running yarder is kind of really the harder it got, the better it was for me, you know, if it was just your standard one drum wonder log in back and forth all day. Well, it's a, it's, that's a pretty rough day there, but you know, it's a, you're running an old GT3 sling yarder and you're like, you know, coming down off the backside while you're slacking the skyline with old band brakes, trying to keep everything smooth and, you know, making sure you got enough slack in your skyline because you got to swing basically 180 degrees around to deck the logs and, yeah, it's, it's always fun, you know, but um, it's not for everybody, that's for sure. Yeah. Copy. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, we about covered everything I figured we'd cover. Is there anything else you wanted to go over with me? No, I mean, not really. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I certainly appreciate what you're doing for the industry. Uh, I think somebody... Um, should have been doing this a long time ago, you know, maybe we wouldn't be in the position that we're in now as an industry, but, um, you know, better late than never. Right. So, yeah, I appreciate that, man. But I just, um, I say this all the time, but I feel like the industry hasn't done a very good job of showing the public that it's not what it used to be. Right. Like, you know, exactly. you can't go run your cat through the creek at the end of the day to wash the tracks out. Like, nobody's doing that, dude. Like, no one on the brush yeah. anymore. I mean, I'm sure there's some exceptions. We're talking in generalities, but, you know, nobody yeah. on the brush anymore just wants to see this, you know, clear cut and left for 100 years. Like, that's not how it is anymore. And, and I feel like the public needs to know that. And I feel like if I can have a part in that, then I'm doing a good job. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would second that for sure. And, you know, the reality of it is, is most loggers are the best environmentalists there are. You know, uh, um, most of us really care about the woods. We, we live in the woods, we work in the woods, and that's how we feed our families. And uh, none of us wants to see it destroyed. I mean, 
it's uh, things are changing, and we have a lot of rules and regulations that we have to abide by. You know, I'm a OPL um, certified logger, I guess, for the, the APL or, or AOL. I'm sorry. And so, you know, you have to make sure that you're doing your due diligence and doing everything correctly and um, doing your best management practices. And not, it's only going to come back on you and, and future generations, you know. Yeah, I, it's just crazy because I think <clears throat> what a lot of people don't realize is how many regulations there are and what all goes into, you know, planning where you're going to cut and how you're going to do it and how you're going to manage a tree farm or public lands, you know, for the forest service and BLM sales and stuff. It's, there's a lot that goes into it before anyone even shows up with a chainsaw. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, really, uh, there really is a lot. I mean, I, it's sometimes it's mind boggling the, the stuff that goes into it. Like you said, before you ever even get out to the job. Yep. But it's cool, though. I mean, I think, uh, you know, like we said, things are starting to change and people are starting to realize that, you know, the industry has been changing for a long time, but no one's seen any of it, you know, and then the technology is being integrated nowadays into the equipment and everything else. Like a lot of the guys up here that are cutting with punchers, they're all running like a Venza maps and stuff instead of relying on like layout, you know, just the layout on the ground. And, you know, it's crazy how much of that stuff. You know, like my dad, he told me that he would have told you to kiss his ass 30 years ago if you would have told him he'd be going out in the brush every day with a microfiber rag and like a GPS, you know, and I'm like, things are different now. Absolutely. We actually just got done setting setting the GPS system up for one of the companies I'm building roads for right now and uh, helping them figure out that off course indicator for finding straight lines in the woods and stuff like that. And it, we were actually just having this conversation is like, I don't think they would have even thought this was a reality, you know, 30 years ago. <laughs> they imagine? Yeah. They would have laughed you off the mountain, dude. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's the same thing with, you know, you hear about the drones stringing out the skyline and stuff nowadays is, I bet they would have laughed at that too. Oh, absolutely. I was just talking to a guy the other day uh two weekends ago um they bought one of those drones to string out their haywire and stuff and he said they did a layout with one guy in one day that he figured would have taken the whole crew a week to do no shit and i was like yeah. man that's incredible you know because it, it just saves so much time you know it's why not the technology's there man yeah i mean <laughs> you can get laughed at all you want by everybody else. But if you're stringing out a road in a day that would have taken a week, then, (laughs) you know, laugh all you want. Right. Right. Like why not lay out three or four roads in one day instead of doing it all week? You know, it frees up, frees up guys to do other stuff that they can get done, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think there's a lot of room for that. You know, with, our industry has always been fairly rudimentary, you know, up until the last 10 years. Um, but in the last 10 years, it's like, seems like it's, you know, 50 or a hundred years of progress. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with certain people like Eric Kroom and those guys that are really just kind of frontiering the, the changes. And, uh, that's what we need, you know, without that, 
I don't know that we would really be able to continue logging um, the way we have been. You know, things, everything else is changing, so the industry itself needs to as well. Well, and the thing too, and I don't want anyone to get mad at me for this, but in Uh-oh. my experience, <laughs> loggers are usually some of the most set in their ways kind of folks. Absolutely. And, you know, obviously it's a generalization <laughs> or whatever. Like there's some guys that are like, oh, tethering. Yeah, I want the first one. But the majority of the industry is like, nah, we're not going to do any yeah. of that. It's just a fad, you know, we're not getting into right. any of that. And now everybody's, you know, everyone's doing it almost. And it's like, it just seems like this industry is slow to adapt, which is understandable because you want, you know, things, processes and systems that are proven but at the same time, on the other side of that coin, you you got to have these guys that are willing to go out and be like, you know what, we'll try it and see what happens. Because that's how the industry progresses, you know, it's how things change. Yeah, absolutely. That's how anything changes, you know. But it's a big risk. And and in our industry specifically, it's, you know, any type of change that you're trying to frontier, you're going to get laughed at, you know. People are going to have that mentality of, oh, yeah, you know, that ain't never going to work. And But with, it, you know, you, you have to do it. <laughs> you yeah. have to try try new stuff. That's how you learn. Yeah, and, that's true. Oh. But are yeah. you uh, going to make it to the log show in February? I think so. Yeah. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not very good at knowing what I'm doing that far ahead. I'm kind of two or maybe at, at the most three days ahead <laughs> myself. But yeah, I always try to make it down there. It's a, definitely a good time. I see you're going to have a booth down there, huh? Yeah. You're gonna have to swing by, man. I'd like to meet you in person. Yeah, absolutely. I think it'd be fun. I Last time I went down there, I think was about the last time I drank alcohol too. So ten <laughs> four on that. That's what I'm kind of yeah. wondering too, because I I got a booth in the performance hall. So there's like, you know, two nights of the sawdust bowl, and I quit drinking. So I'm like, man, I'm gonna have to bring me some extra bottles of water or something. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It's a, it's always a party down there. Yeah, it's always fun too. It's um it's always something I look forward to. I never really had anything, you know, never had an attachment to it or nothing. But this year I was like, I'm going to get a booth and see what happens. Yeah. I think it'll be good. And it's like, goes back to like what we were talking about, just promoting what you're doing and trying to get it out to most people. I mean, like I think I was telling you yesterday, I was like, I, I only just recently discovered your podcast and I'm, I'm pretty active in that stuff. You know, I, I, uh, I'm always listening to podcasts. That's what I do all day is podcasts and audio books, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I, I didn't know about it until recently. And, and when I found it, I was like, Holy shit, this is awesome. You know? <laughs> so I think that would be the case with a lot of people. It's just, uh, it's, you're kind of got the worst case scenario with loggers, you know, <laughs> trying to get the word out that there's stuff like this out there. But I think it's really important. It's crazy too. Cause I look at uh, some of the analytics like Spotify does a year end thing. And it's like, <clears throat> I think, uh, I think it was 31% of my listeners have never listened to podcasts before. Really? And I was like, you know what? I'm, 
I'm hitting the target audience. Like I all the time I'm telling people how to find them, you know, like these guys are like, what's a podcast? Where do I watch that? I'm like, Oh dude, you just listen to it. I'm not that sophisticated yet. I don't film them, put them on YouTube or nothing, but yeah, I spend a lot of time telling guys like, Oh, if you have an iPhone, you can just go to Apple podcasts. And they're like, well, this is crazy. I'm like, I, I, yeah, I what, what? So. <laughs> it's kind of the same thing with audio books. You know, you try telling somebody about that and they're like, what <laughs> you mean? Like with the Kindle? <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, are you supposed to read books? Well, you can listen to yeah. them, too, you know? Right. Yeah. Right on, yeah. man. Well, I appreciate your time tonight. And uh, hopefully I'll get to meet you in February. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I really appreciate what you're doing, and I'm excited to see where it goes for you. All right, thank you. I'll we'll uh, we'll talk to you later. All right, thanks. Yep, you have a good night. You too. That was a long one, but I think you guys will like it. Share it if it was good. If it was trash, don't share it. Also, if you listened this long to the podcast, thanks for sticking around. We'll see you on the next one.